Lewis has been a a person who's been very involved in our church over the years, and his wife CJ, the, their family's well known. They've been very plugged in. Bob is one of our elders. And he's contributed a lot to our elder board. I imagine all the elders would be quick to say that uh, he's one of the most knowledgeable people on the elder board when it comes to the Word of God. And we've always considered a privilege uh, to have Bob as a part of our church, and the wisdom God has given him through his Word has been an encouragement to all of us. Bob also enjoys sharing the Word of God with God's people. He's been teaching a Sunday school class here recently, and uh, even up until the time that they're planning to leave, he wanted to be active. And he and I were talking, and he's got some things that I think would be an encouragement to us as we hear from one of a group of people that are leaving our church to go back to the East Coast and to serve in various capacities, some with Campus Crusade and their continuing ministry there. In the case of Bob and CJ, I believe Bob is going to go on and get some seminary training and hopes to eventually become plugged into a church in, in some pastoral-type capacity. So it's with a joy that we send them forth knowing that we've had an opportunity to minister to their lives, but at the same time, they've had a tremendous opportunity to minister to our lives. And so it's a privilege to have you, Bob and CJ, and your ministry, and Bob, to have you speak to us this morning. Thank you. Well, just hang on a minute while I get spread out here, my stuff. By the way, I wanted to say that uh, I really had trouble trying to figure out what to talk on today. I have this uh, neat little, with the PowerPoint and everything, presentation on 1 John 1 and what it means to walk in the light and how to deal with sin. All prepared, easy to share, nice and short, but you know, I just didn't feel that you know, that was the, thing, the best thing to do. And uh, I was just praying about things. I thought, ah, James 2. Guess what, just a few weeks ago, uh, we had a great uh, message on that by Neil. And in fact, I was teaching on that in our essential class at the time, and so I kind of said, well, you know what, we were going to spend another week on it, and after that message, you really didn't need to do it. Uh, but I really feel God led uh, in what I'm going to be sharing on. Uh, it's interesting that Arch, um, I think as a result of, you know, a discussion that went on in one of the Sunday school classes, and all of you who aren't going ought to really think about it, because it's a neat chance to, to grow in the Word and to fellowship with the other Christians around the Word. But he shared about how to get more out of reading and studying God's Word. And he, uh, he gave an example, it looks like, based on the use of the word heart. You know, because that you know, the word, many different words in Greek and Hebrew are translated hard, and it can mean different things in different places, and you know, it's kind of a vague word. So he gave it was an example of that, and then he has this procedure for exegesis, which you know, exegesis means just to to study it so that you can interpret it and understand what it means and what's it all about. So um, I imagine Arch would have those available for anybody else who wants a copy of that, but. Um, I just wanted to say that, uh, I, well, actually, I asked uh, my family what were some of the things they thought of as they thought back of the last, well, I guess, 13 years. We've spent a little over 13 years with Coast Bible Church. And, uh, you know, I thought uh, about, my wife said that, uh, well, I just thought for, I guess I should say my wife said, my wife and I both thought about how Coast Bible Church has been a place for us and for our family to grow because of its emphasis on grace. Um, and I was thinking about the importance of grace in growing in Christ, a gr- an environment of grace in which 
you don't feel like you have to put on a facade. You, have to, you don't feel like you have to be somebody you're not. That people are looking at you to see if you're doing things right. You know, uh, when we know that God accepts us as we are and loves us, that when we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing we can do to change that relationship. We'll become a child of God. We can't become unborn. And when we realize that uh, there's all this grace that's been given to us through the Word of God for us to grow in Christ, then suddenly when we fall down, which we all do, we're able to get back up and just press on ahead. And it's not like a fatal blow. It's not so devastating. And I just feel like Coast Bible Church has been a real place, a gracious place, where my family and myself have been able to grow in Christ and be encouraged. And um, Siege and I both have fond memories of various couples Bible studies we've been involved in in the past. Um, <clears throat> CJ said she looks at Coast Bible Church as a place to learn and to serve as a family. Um, all three of our kids were dedicated there, she said, and, and baptized here. Uh, and we have special memories, as, as she thought about it, looking back at the early Awana years. And Sunday school beach nights during the summer has always been a really rich time for her. Um, and we've also developed some deep friendships, which we will maintain the remainder of our lives. And I asked uh, our kids about it, and they remember Coast Bible Church as a friendly environment, and they enjoyed how VBS has been handled while they've been here. And of course, it's been handled by many different people, so that's interesting how God has worked. And they'll always remember Pastor Arch's Midwestern pronunciation <laughs> and hanging out at the pool at Arch's house. And they appreciate the youth group and the teaching there and the friendships they've developed. Um, so anyway, in general, our memories, as I thought back, they're not, you know, sure, we have memories of our family and of our home and of our neighborhood and our work. But our memories are really more of Coast Bible Church than anything else. Um... <clears throat> Well, I was thinking as I came up here, I'm about ready to give a report on Anderson in Africa. You know, obviously. <laughs> no, I guess that's not what I just feel like that. Uh, I was also thinking um, that, you know, this is a real privilege to be able to get up here and do this. And by the way, I was going to tell the ushers, please do not pass the plates. I'm glad you did it before the message. Don't pass it after. People will probably be taking some money back out. We don't need that. So just keep it as it is. Um... Like I said, I struggled with, with what topic to do, to speak on. And actually, what I'm going to speak on, and you can go ahead and bring, the, bring it up, um, is a framework for the truth. You're saying, well, what in the world is he talking about? A framework for the truth. Because for, for me, and for my family, that's what the legacy was from Coast Bible Church. Uh, we've been giving something to enable us to know how to take God's word, determine the truth, and have confidence that we have taken God's word and evaluated it accurately and have understood what it says over here and what it says over there and it all fits together in a logical way. We don't have to be geniuses. We don't have to have gone to seminary to do this. We don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to do that. There's some common sense things. Some of the things that are shared in the sexual class this morning that enable us to... Um, and so... I kept on coming back to Hebrews 6. Once he did Hebrews 6, I thought, oh, great, Hebrews 6, that's going to last forever. I'll never be able to get through it. And then I just decided that that's what God was leading me to do. I had done something several years ago. I'd, I've been reading through 1 Corinthians 3, and some things there brought to mind the same imagery 
that you see in, in Hebrews 6. So you start comparing those two passages. And it's amazing how similar they are. But the ironic thing is, 1 Corinthians 3 is a passage we often go to, verses 10 to 15, and it talks about there being a foundation, no other foundation which can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then you build on it gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And then it talks about when it goes through the fire to test it, to see, you know, what kind of works you built on that foundation. You know, as a Christian, come place my faith in Christ, that's the foundation. What have I built on it? Well, if it gets burned up, you know, most of it gets burned up, then I know what kind of works, you know, they were. And, but it says, then in verse 15 it says, Yet they shall be saved, but as through fire, as escaping through fire. And much of the same imagery we find in Hebrews 6, like I said. But the interesting thing is, that's a passage I've used, and I imagine a lot of you have used, in talking with people who say that you can lose your salvation. You know, that it's not eternal. There's no guarantees. We'll never know for sure until we get to heaven if we're going to be saved. And that point of view, you've probably heard as once saved, always saved, or <laughs> you can lose your salvation. It's been expressed as, uh, in a positive way, it's expressed as eternal security. Uh, a Calvinist viewpoint says the uh, perseverance of the saints. I like to call it the preservation of the saints. I see it as God doing it, not us. But... Um, 1 Corinthians 3 is a passage we often turn to to support that, to say, look, this is clear. Even if everything we've ever done is burned up, we're going to be saved and as we're going through fire. Hebrews 6, how many people have heard people you know, argue with you perhaps about how this says you can lose your salvation. But they use very similar imagery and they're saying many similar things. I thought that was ironic. So that's what I decided we'd do is we'd look at that today. But really what I want to do is not study that text. Uh, because we would not be able to cover it all today in detail. So I, I prepared a eight-page handout in detail. Dave will be glad to know we're not going to go through the whole thing today. <laughs> but uh, it's available. There's like 17 copies available in the foyer. If you want one, you can get it. If you run out, I made a copy in the, available in the office. They can make more copies. But the reason I wanted to do that is I talked about what we gained was a framework for the truth. And so... I want to look at some principles for interpreting Scripture briefly and a framework for interpreting God's Word that's been given to us. Many of those principles in that framework come up when you look at Hebrews 6. And so that's the idea. So, as far as principles for interpreting Scripture, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, and I just brought this up, I just did this off top of my head really and just wrote down the things that I thought of that apply to me so I'm sure there's better lists more thorough lists more accurately ex- or carefully expressed but this is just what I've seen from my own personal experience um, the first thing is context in my opinion I've just learned that 95% of the time if I just read that thing that I'm not sure what in the world it means in context carefully thinking about not just the context of the, the immediate context right there but also asking myself um, you know what about the entire letter perhaps or the entire chapter first and the entire letter what about other letters that author has written what about the rest of the New Testament what about the whole Bible where does this come up because I think about those things uh, so many of the things that you know we tend to look at this little thing at the microscope this one little text and I think part of that is because of 
our Bible having all these verses and chapters. And sometimes I think the best, better, it would have been better for our Bibles just have the chapters and didn't have the verses. Maybe not even any of that. Because we'd learn to read it just like we would anything else. Um, but we look at that little verse and we miss the context. And so we, a simple thing to do is just read it carefully in context and it would make sense. And the next thing to do, I was looking at what Art said and a lot of these things he sh- shared too with a lot more detail. But he said... Uh, same thing as this on this one I noticed ask yourself what the author is saying what is the author trying to say instead you know, just common sense what does he seem to be saying here what's he getting what's his whole point why did he write this letter now that's what you want to get at that's a key thing that he can help us from misunderstanding something and then look at who is this letter written to who are the readers does that make a difference Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians that's important. That's why it's called Hebrews. <laughs> and that's important when you read it to be aware of that. Um, when you define, as we go through, there's certain terms that will come up. Uh, like repentance or faith uh, or gospel. Uh, sanctification may come up. And you need to know what those terms mean. Define them carefully. And remember that words, just like in, as in English, you know, I may use a certain word uh, and it, it can mean something completely different when I say something's hot. You don't know what I'm talking about unless I'm talking about food or I'm, say, I'm excited about something I want to tell you but I just read some book. It's re- you know, then you know I'm using it in a di- totally different way. Similarly, terms in, in the Bible, in Greek and in Hebrew, are used differently in different areas. So we just need to be aware of that. And then we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Yeah, we just need to look at it. It says it's here, but if my understanding of what this says here disagrees with what it says somewhere else then obviously I must be reading you know that wrong I must be missing some main point go look back at context and then the next key thing to look at is what kind of truth is this is it talking about eternal life how to become a Christian is it talking about inheritance truth how to grow in Christ you know is it talking about what we gain as a result of certain things we do in the kingdom when we you know when Christ returns you know, the, the inheritance we can gain, or is it talking about how to enter that kingdom? You'll notice many places it'll use the term to inherit eternal life or inherit the kingdom. In other places it'll talk about gaining eternal life or entering the kingdom, and that, those words you have to be careful with. And the last thing I just put down was, let's use some common sense. You know, a lot of times, just a, face, a straightforward, common sense uh, approach that doesn't miss the obvious, you know, gain us a lot. That will come up here in Hebrews 6 when we look at that. Next thing I want to look at was a framework for interpreting God's Word. And this is, these are some unique things that, as I look back on, that I've gained as a, as a result of the time that, that I've spent at Coast Bible Church. Um, being aware of these things is important. For example, the first one is most of the New Testament was written to believers. Now you'd think that might be kind of obvious, but we, how often do we take a passage and we're trying to understand it and then we're assuming that it's talking to people who don't know the Lord and so of course when we do that we're going to misunderstand what the guy's trying to say because he was written to Christians he was writing to Christians about something they needed to know he wasn't writing to people who didn't know the Lord so that's important to keep that in mind <clears throat> on the other hand when you read uh, something like John where at the end of, towards the, end, the very end of John it says that Jesus did many of the works which are not written in this book but that these were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in his name. 
Well, that clearly says the purpose that John, John wrote that letter, this is gospel, was to make the gospel clear, to evangelize, to reach people for Christ. And that's important to keep in mind. The next point was that <clears throat> when the term salvation is used, it usually is not talking about gaining eternal life. Honey, can you get me my glass there of something to drink? I figured I wouldn't need it, but I'm going to need it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so often, we, as soon as we see this term salvation, and there's other terms like that, like the word soul, you know, we assume certain things. The word repentance is another word that we've heard it used a certain way um, so much that we get it confused sometimes what it really means. Uh, the term salvation, as it's used, is used in the New Testament, it isn't talking about gaining eternal life. It, it can often be used in the same way that we say, oh boy, saved by the bell. It's talking about, as Christians, growing in Christ. You've heard you know, many people here speak on this before, so I won't belabor it. I will get a drink. <clears throat> Boy, that helps. Okay, the third uh, little pillar for this framework <clears throat> that I saw was, actually three and four, was distinguishing between a couple of consequences. The, the consequence of not believing in Jesus Christ is a loss of eternal life. We can only gain eternal life by believing in Christ, by faith alone. But the consequence of not walking in obedience to Jesus Christ is loss of inheritance, not loss of the kingdom. It doesn't mean we're not entering the kingdom. So we need to keep those things straight in our mind. If they're straight, it, it helps us as we're reading scripture to more likely read it the way it was intended. Because that's the key thing. How many of you ever read some poem and you misunderstood what the guy was trying to say? He didn't know what he was talking about. And he'd draw all these crazy conclusions. So we can do the same thing with God's word. So we need to differentiate between passages which are speaking, the next point, which are speaking about how to become a Christian and those which speak about what a Christian should do. And that's kind of a summary of what I just said. When it comes to faith and believing, keep it simple. Don't turn the gospel into one of works by redefining what believe or what faith means. I'm sure many of you have heard that you know, it says we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. You know, there's a bit of truth in there if it's understood the right way in that when a person places faith in Christ, therefore faith what is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So we know that um, when a person has come to Christ, God changes him. There's no doubt about that. But when they made that statement, what they were saying is, you've got to have the right kind of faith. It's not just enough to believe, you have to do works. So suddenly they're saying you're saved by, saved by faith plus works. And so they've redefined faith to say it's not really faith unless there's works involved. And so we have to be careful not to redefine terms from the way they were originally intended. And, and I think in Greek, they basically meant the same thing for belief as we do. And as I think about it, you know, I, I believe something. I believe the sky is blue. Now, before I'm going to believe that the sky is, is red, somebody's going to have to really convince me you can't just tell me. You've got to try harder. You've got to try to believe this. You know, if I believe something, I just believe it because I'm convinced in my heart and my mind that that's what it is. And, you know, it's just, it's, I can't decide to believe something. I can't choose. It's just what happens in my heart and my mind. And God's involved in that process. But we need to, you know, that's common sense. We tend to look at these words, believe and faith, like there's some mysterious, you know, spiritual words. And we redefine them to, so that our theology makes sense. But we should just take faith and believe, in my opinion, and keep it simple, the way they were intended. Faith means faith just as it does for us in English. And believe means the same thing. Uh, the problem that we have with that is that we say, well, 
you know, we, I remember when I first uh, got involved with the Navigators years ago, and I'd never led anybody to the Lord. And the first time I led somebody to the Lord, I was all excited. And I led somebody else to the Lord, and I saw this guy starting to grow, and then he wasn't. I'm saying, well, he must not have really believed, you know. I'm trying to do something. Maybe if I can get him to do certain things, then I'll have confidence. See, he looks like he's changed. And I, what I'm going to do is I'm not really, I myself don't, didn't really have confidence that he had changed because of his faith. You know, so sometimes I just ask people, well, do you, you really believe that when a person is trusting Christ that God changes them? That's a good question to ask. Because if we do, then we'll keep the words faith and belief simple. We won't complicate them. <clears throat> Another word is, when it comes to repentance, remember that the root idea is that of changing the mind. And we don't gain eternal life by repenting. We gain eternal life by believing. You know, repentance, you know, when a person is being convicted by the Holy Spirit, often he has a desire to want to change, to turn from sin. And so, what I like to do is keep in mind that repentance is something that takes place in my mind. It's not focusing on what I do, it's focusing on what I think, what I understand, where my heart is. And if I keep that in mind when I look at passages on repentance, that framework has helped me to not misunderstand what's being said. So, again, coming up with a good understanding of what repentance is is important, I think. And the last point was, do not assume that fire is hellfire, because it usually isn't. As, as often is not as it is when you read it in the New Testament. Okay, so that's the framework. And now, we're going to, believe it or not, we're going to read through Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12, and we're going to look at just a few points that relate back to that framework. So we can see how understanding this text you know, we can understand it better if we keep that framework in mind. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'll just read through it. We have a great deal. And by the way, I love Barnabas. Barnabas stands for son of encouragement. And he was just a real encouragement type of guy who believed in people. When <clears throat> the Apostle Paul had been converted and came from Damascus to Jerusalem, all the believers were afraid of him. Barnabas went and got him. And brought him to the apostles and you know, said, look, see, he's really changed. And I just like the kind of guy he is. You know, the kind of a guy that's always positive and encouraging and wanting to build people up and thinking about other people. Well, one of the possible authors of Hebrews, because we don't know, is Barnabas. So just because I like Barnabas, to, this morning we're going to assume that Barnabas is the author. Rather than saying the author said this, if the author said that, I'll just say Barnabas. So here's what Barnabas said. This part of the... Of the of the letter there are five warnings in Hebrews this is the third one each one gets progressively a little more serious than the one before it and he says Barnabas says to these Jewish Christians we have a great deal to say about this and he had just been talking about Melchizedek Jesus is, uh, being a, uh, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek we have a great deal to say about this and it's difficult to explain since you have become slow to understand for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God's revelation. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have senses, whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So obviously these believers are young, immature believers, not really growing in Christ. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Christ, about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because through their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For ground that has drunk the rain, that has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. <clears throat> but if it produces thorns and thistles, it is disqualified and near to be cursed and will be burned at the end. <clears throat> even though, excuse me, even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints. And you continue to serve them. Now, we want each of you to demonstrate the same sort of diligence for the final realization of your hope, so that you won't become lazy, but imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. And I emphasize the word inherit because... It helps us to see the whole thing. What he's talking about is he wants these Christians not to be immature, but to grow in Christ so they can inherit. That's the overall context. That's a good thing to keep in mind. When you read it in context, you see that. If you just look at the little problem area, we miss it. Okay. In my opinion, this is referring to believers. There are three basic approaches. I'm sure there's more than that, but three basic approaches to this text. One is more a Calvinistic or Reformed approach that says... I know that a person to become a Christian, he can't lose that salvation, he can't become unborn. So, he believes in eternal security, they believe in eternal security as we do. But they look at this text and they say, no, this isn't referring to Christians. These are not believers here. They closed, they almost got saved. Right up to the edge, but you know, not quite. Not genuine faith, not real faith. An Arminian approach, or someone who believes you can lose your salvation would say, no, these are talking about Christians. And the consequence is, they lost their salvation. They were saved and no longer saved. And our approach is, yes, these are speaking about Christians. We agree with the Arminian. Because you read it in context, it just makes sense. We're not going to try to force it to fit where it doesn't fit. But it's not talking about gaining or losing eternal life. It's talking about inheritance. That's our basic approach. This is referring to believers, just briefly to show that... Um, you can bring these all up at once, actually, because I'm just going to skip through this real quick. The readers are dressed as brothers. Sometimes Barnabas includes himself with them. He says, we intend to include them. So obviously, since he's a Christian, the author, I would assume, or else this is not part of the New Testament, uh, that means that they are too. And there's five participial phrases here that refer to these people. It says, having been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, having become a partakers of the Holy Spirit, having tasted the good word of God, having tasted the powers of the age to come. And all of those are clearly, in my opinion, if you just look at those and don't try to force it into something else, they're talking about Christians. Partakers or shares of the Holy Spirit? How can you become partakers or shares of the Holy Spirit if you're not saved? Uh, it says, having been enlightened, it's passive. So it's referring to something that was done to them. So God has done something, you know, in their lives. Tasted is used three times above. But that was also used in Hebrews 2.9 in the same book. And it said, talk about Christ tasted death for us. Well, 
I hope he did more than just kind of almost die, but didn't quite. So this is, these are talking about believers. And in Hebrews 3.14, the raised are said to be partakers with Christ, to be sharers with Christ. So I, I'm convinced that these are talking about believers. We'll just move on. Okay, there's another phrase that we see here, a critical phrase that says, for, it is impossible. And in the Greek it says, I put up there impossible I have these little ellipses da 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 and then to renew to repentance because in the Greek it's great separated it says for impossible for those you know the phrase we just looked at for the ones uh, having been enlightened having tasted the gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit etc 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 and then it says and falling away to renew to repentance but they're separated and it just reads awkward in English so most just about every Bible sticks them together up at verse 3 or 4 I think it's impossible to renew to repentance. So it's talking about something that's impossible. Repentance. The first point I want to make is repentance is not turning from sin to God. It's something that takes place in the mind. And the second point is we're saved by believing, not by repenting. So as we keep that in mind, remember we looked at those points earlier in the framework? Okay, that make, helps us to be careful about how we view this. The third point is this describes a believer who has reached a point at which he will not respond to the Spirit or to the exhortation of other believers. Now, that's my opinion as I'm, as I'm reading through this about what it means impossible to renew to repentance. This person has reached a point where his heart has become hardened. Earlier in Hebrews, uh, Barnabas warned them to be careful that the hearts become hardened you know, to the deceitfulness of sin. So it's not like he hasn't spoken about this, warned them about this very thing earlier. This, what he was concerned about, calls for drastic measures. And in Hebrews 6.3, he says, And this we will do if God permits. That's an important phrase. If God permits. Um, so in other words, these believers were at a point such that the normal ministry of the body of Christ in their lives just wasn't going to work much more because their hearts were so hardened. But if God was to bring hardship into their lives, symbolized in this text we read by the burning of useless crops in the field, then there's a possibility that somebody could be brought back into a vibrant relationship with Christ again. Okay. Uh, and now I talked about where my last point, I think, in the uh, framework was using common sense. Consequences. If loss of salvation is in view here, what does that mean? If this is saying that you can lose your salvation, it's impossible to renew to repentance. If that means once you've fallen away, it's impossible to renew to repentance. If that means that you've lost your salvation, what is that saying? Well, a common sense here says, if this text is saying that a Christian could become unsaved, could lose their salvation, then we must say that it says that if we ever lose our salvation, that it's impossible to ever get it back again. You for the expression, once saved, always saved. This, isn't say, this would not be saying, once saved, perhaps lost. This is saying, once lost, always lost. Now, think about that. If we ever lose salvation, then it's impossible to ever get it back, no matter how sincerely the person wants to later to turn back to Christ and follow Him. No matter how much he regrets his earlier decision, no matter how much God loves that person, even if that person prays asking God to forgive them, even if that person prays, promises to strive to follow Christ as their Lord for the rest of their life. Now, is that consistent with the view of God we read in the, in the Bible? That doesn't make sense. So that tells us, you know, what common sense is, that can't be what was intended here. So then, 
the next thing I'd like to look at again real briefly is a blessing and cursing motif. This letter, being aware of who it was written to, the readers, as we talked about earlier, was written to Jewish believers. And in the Old Testament, you read again and again where the prophets say, if you do this, all these good things are going to happen. But on the other hand, if you turn to follow other idols, then you know, I'm going to stop the rains and you're going to, people are going to come in and raid you, etc. There was always the blessing and cursing and possibilities. The Old Testament is full of blessing and cursing texts. So we shouldn't be surprised to see the same kind of thing here written to Jewish Christians. Um, and that's really what was done here. <clears throat> this is a third class Greek conditional statement. The only Greek statement I'm going to stay, say here. And Arch has pointed out recently that they can often, third class Greek uh, conditional statements can often be translated as sense instead of if. Not every time, but sometimes they can. So the idea here is that and it's called the probable future. The idea here is that Barnabas expected these Christians to go on to maturity. It was something he expected. He had positive, he was confident that they would. It wasn't like, man, you better watch out. I think you guys are going to go into hell and I'm really, you know, I'm not so sure about you guys anymore. Since God would permit it. He was confident about that. Okay, the next point about this is that blessing, and the blessing side, good crops, Inheritance. Not good crops, eternal life. Good crops, inheritance. On the cursing side, if the crops are mainly thorns and thistles, you know, not much of useful crops, then the inheritance is forfeited. In Hebrews 6 8 is a key uh, word. The word, uh, let me look that back up. Uh, it says, but if it produces thorns and thistles, it is. Some Bibles say rejected, but the word is adokamas, disqualified, and near to being cursed, but we burned at the end. Disqualified, or rejected, or it fails a test. He has some tests in it, didn't pass that test. It never is used in the New Testament to refer to hell. So our becoming disqualified has to do with gaining an inheritance, being disqualified from receiving a, a great blessing. You know, Jesus told parables about people who, <coughs> excuse me, uh, had were given talents to do something with and some of them were faithful did something with it and another one hid it in a napkin and he was disqualified from an inheritance that's the kind of truth he's talking about here now why don't we go ahead and look at the next slide and I just want you to see some similarities between uh, these two texts I'll just read them through we're not going to really study it just so you can see that 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 6 talk about some very similar things First Corinthians 3, it talks about fire to test the kind of work he did. Hebrews 6, fire to remove thorns. Both First Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 6 talk about a foundation. First Corinthians 3 talks about saying you cannot relay that foundation that's been laid. And Hebrews 6 says don't try to relay that foundation. First Corinthians 3 says if work is burned up, it will be forfeited. The reward will be forfeited or he will suffer loss perhaps. Uh, in Hebrews 6 it says if crops are burned, well, they're, they're worthless. They're disqualified. It is disqualified. Uh, in verse 3, if work is burned up, he will escape, has escaped through a fire. Hebrews 6, if the crops are burned and they're useless, he is near to being cursed. Didn't say he's cursed. He's near to that. He's going to go through fire. Uh, in verse 3, it says there's a blessing cursing motif we see there. Wood, hay, stubble, goes over precious stones. We see the same thing in Hebrews 6. <clears throat> And I just mentioned the gold, silver, precious stones. And, um, and Hebrews 6 talks about producing a useful crop. 
receiving a blessing and rewarded with an inheritance whereas wood, hay, stubble talks about the reward being forfeited in Hebrews 6 it talks about no inheritance you know, being disqualified from that inheritance so they're very similar but it's interesting we use First Peter 3 to talk about how we are eternally secure he views Hebrews 6 to show we aren't um, then let's look at this phrase its end is to be burned burned oh must be referring to hell this has got to be bad news man if it ends to be burned does that mean I'm going to lose my salvation well remember the, the foundation you know the framework point that says don't assume fire has to do with hell remember the crops are burned not the ground very important the ground isn't burned you can't burn the ground you can burn all you want you don't kill the ground you kill the crops on it and the ground refers to the person who has trusted Christ the crops are the results of that person's you know, his works the purpose of burning a field that yields a poor crop is not to destroy the field but to prepare it to yield a more useful crop in the future so what Barnabas is concerned about is helping these people who aren't being faithful to grow in Christ that's what he's trying to do the fire in Hebrews 6 serves a similar purpose as the one in 1 Corinthians 3 but they, neither one of them refer to hellfire and fire is often used in the New Testament to refer to God's discipline and purging and you know things out of our life uh, in our Sunday school class Carolyn Tees likes to talk about when you talk about the burning she says well God's here been burning my field you know burning up all the crops and you know that's true God has to do that sometimes just has to burn that up and get rid of that stuff in our life so then what are the actual consequences of this warning well it's kind of in summary uh, we don't receive the full inheritance. Later on, remember, as we read here, it says, I want you to be maintaining the same... We want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final or the full realization of your hope, so that you won't become lazy, but imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. The full assurance of the hope. That's what we want. In Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, that's uh, kind of a... It goes on plus that, but that kind of shows what Barnabas was talking about. This is inheritance truth, not eternal life truth. Remember I said that um, that's what we need to keep in mind is distinguishing or reading something. Is it talking about eternal life? Is it talking about inheritance? Is it talking about something, how we become a Christian? Is it talking about what Christians need to do? And to keep that in mind. So in conclusion... As I think back of what I've gained from Coast Bible Church was a balanced, sound approach to interpreting and understanding Scripture. When I first came to Coast Bible Church, I had a real desire to dig into God's Word, and I did study the Word a lot, and I'd memorized Scripture, and I knew the Bible. But there were some things I didn't understand, you know, this, how that made sense compared to something else. Um, and I imagine some of you are in the same, that same position maybe now. Or you can look back to where you struggle with some things, and now things make more sense. Um, I didn't really know how to put it all together. I didn't really understand the theology. I didn't know what you know reformed or Armenian really was. I thought Armenian had something to do with losing your salvation. That was about it. But now I have confidence that I can study a text of scripture in context and systematically come up with something that makes sense. It's not because I'm smarter or I've studied all that much more. It's because I have a framework to help me to come up with a logical, common sense understanding of the text. To come up with what was likely intended. What was the author trying to say? Not what do I want to make him say. What was the author trying to tell me? I had to figure out what he's saying. Not try to get him what he said to fit into my, you know, I got the square peg, get it to fit in the round hole. What was the author trying to tell me? And that's really helped me. And you know what? 
gaining that framework should never be taken lightly. That's really a, a fantastic thing that I've gained here and I appreciate. And one, one last word is that Ezra 7.10, Ezra, who was you know, a priest during the people coming back you know, from um, out, out of captivity back to Jerusalem to build the temple, he was involved, the leader in that. And Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And I think that's one thing I'm going to focus on in the future. Maybe all of us can focus on is once we get the framework to understanding what it means, why did Ezra study it and understand it? So that he could put it in practice in his life and then he could teach it. I don't know about you, my tendency to say, I can understand it so I can tell other people what to do. And sometimes I actually have to apply it to my own life but that's not the approach we should take and so I uh, that's all I wanted to say I think let's close in prayer I just really appreciate uh, what God gives us and I don't know if we all realize what we've gained from having a framework that enables us to see God's word in a way that it all makes sense let's, let's close Lord I thank you so much for the chance to be able to speak here to people and share a little bit with them what you have done in my life and in the life of my family as a result of being here at Coast Bible Church. Something that we maybe take for granted and don't recognize uh, the importance of being able to understand how to uh, take your word and get it to fit together to understand it as you intended it to be understood and not as I would like it to be understood. And Lord, I thank you for uh, a framework that enables us to grow in you and to take your word and, and uh, apply to our lives as it was intended. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Bob. Going to stand. Let's wrap up this message of this gift that we have received free. Let's turn your hymnals to 302, Lamb of God. It's an amazing gift. And as Bob tells us, it's free.